we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. And just to give you a heads up, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, in case your version looks just a tad different from mine as we're reading through. Uh, But if you would, stand and uh, give attention to God's Word and to the reading of it. Uh, From Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that not to us, not to me, would be the glory, but to your name alone, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Would your Spirit be with us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Disagreements are an inevitable part of life. For instance, my wife Caitlin and I in our marriage have often disagreed on what the definition of clean is. For me, clean means folding the laundry, pushing a few books under the coffee table, and doing a couple dishes, and the house is clean. For Caitlin, it requires an entire weekend of purposeful planning and intervention and, and just a whole plan of attack to get this place clean. And I do have to confess after four years that she's finally bringing me around to the real definition of clean. Disagreements are inevitable in family, in work, friendships, and in the church as well. As you well know, whether you are connected to the church or not, here this morning, disagreements are an inevitable part of the life of the church. The church at large has disagreements about doctrine, about what the church should look like and what the church should be doing in the world. Our local churches and congregations have disagreements on how things should be done, on what songs we should be singing, on where our money should be invested. And even within our churches and our closest relationships, Sometimes, especially in our closest relationships, there are always problems, there are always tensions, there are confusions that can arise. And there may just be that one person that you just don't quite click with. You're not, you're never quite on the same page, or they just may rub you the wrong way a little bit. That may be me for some of you here this morning. Our differences and disagreements 
understandably make unity a struggle for the church. And it always has been a struggle. It was a struggle for the Philippian church, to whom Paul writes this letter. And in fact, if you read farther in chapter 4, Paul actually calls out two women by name who are having a disagreement and admonishes them to agree in the Lord. Now, how would you like to have been enshrined in Scripture for all eternity for having a disagreement one Sunday? That would, that would be unfortunate. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul, uh, when he is talking about living a life worthy of the gospel, emphasizes unity. Chapter 1, verse 27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. Hear that unity language. To be effective as a church for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community to the ends of the earth. Unity, being in one spirit, in one mind, is crucial. And so Paul fleshes that out for us here in chapter 2 in our passage this morning. What this one spirit, what this one mind, what this beautiful mind, if you'll allow me to borrow the movie title this morning, this beautiful mind looks like. Now, being in one spirit, in one mind, doesn't mean we won't have different ideas. It doesn't mean we won't have different perspectives. It doesn't mean we won't have disagreements. It doesn't have to mean that our personalities or our preferences are always going to match up, because they just aren't. But it does mean being united in mindset, in attitude, in service together, despite our disagreements, side by side for the gospel. And because being united together in one mind is crucial to be effective as a church, I want us this morning to look at what is this one mind, this beautiful mind, what does it look like? What does it look like? Then how do we get there? And then what happens when we do? So first, what does the beautiful mind, the united church, look like? How do we get there? And then what happens when we do? So first, what does this beautiful mind look like? If you look at verse 1 with me in chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul begins this passage with an if. And when he does, he's not using if to say that he's doubting whether these things are present in the Philippian church or not. He's not doubting that they they have any of these things in their life. The if just gives them, excuse me, and us here this morning an opportunity to pause and to reflect and to think about these things, to think about these characteristics. Are these characteristics present in my own life, in your own life? Are these characteristics present in the life of your church? Encouragement. Do you experience encouragement in your reading of God's Word personally? Encouragement as you hear God's Word preached and taught, as you hear it sung, as you hear God's Word spoken in your conversations? Have you been comforted by the love of Christ? And have you experienced the the comfort of the love of fellow believers for you? 
Do you know the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Personally, and in the life of the church, as members are using their gifts to build up the body of Christ? Have you been warmed by the affection that Jesus has for you and the affection of believers for you? Have you been lifted up by the sympathy of Christ and of His people in the midst of your sorrows and your, your downtimes? And I hope that, that as we are pausing and reflecting on these characteristics that you're saying, yes, I have. I have experienced that in my life. I've experienced that here at Redeemer. I've experienced that in my church. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, complete my joy. In other words, give. there, there is much cause for rejoicing. There are so many good things happening in your life. There are so many good things happening in the life of the church. But he's saying, complete my joy. Give me even more cause for rejoicing. Let there be more encouragement, more comfort from love, more participation in the Spirit, more affection, more sympathy, so much so that you are completely united together in this same mind, having that same love, just being in full accord in one mind. And I hope that as we've reflected that you do long for more of these characteristics in your own life and in the life of the church. I hope you have that longing to experience the Holy Spirit in your life and in the life of this church. So you have the longing to know the love of Jesus more in your own life. So let's get there together this morning. Uh, it's also helpful in verse 3 to see what this beautiful mind does not look like. And Paul gives that for us in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And actually in chapter 1, Paul has mentioned that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, the same language here used in chapter 2. Now, you think about that. Preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. How is it possible that someone could be proclaiming the gospel of grace and proclaiming Christ and do so from envy or rivalry. And in my limited experience as a preacher, I can tell you that it's very easy to do that, unfortunately. To be proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but to be more concerned about what people are thinking about you. To be more concerned about hearing your praises. To be wanting to be seen as the most knowledgeable and the most capable and the most talented. And it's that way with any Christian service, with any ministry in the body of Christ. No matter what your role is, no matter where God has placed you, ministry, Christian service is a perfect opportunity for conceit, for rivalry, for pride. And it's subtle because ministry is a good thing. Service is a good thing. But are you using your gifts to build yourself up or to build others up? Are you ministering to feel good about yourself or to bring good to others? Are you ministering longing deep down for the praise and approval of others? Or are you looking to their growth in Christ? Envy, rivalry, pride can be subtle, but it's present in our ministry, uh, in the body of Christ, in the church. And so this brings us to our key thought in verse 4. In contrast to rivalry and conceit, the beautiful mind is one of humility. This unity that is so important 
to be effective as a church comes through humility. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And the call here is to take that same level of thought and energy that we naturally apply to our own needs. You see, we naturally think of ourselves as significant. We naturally look to take care of our own interests. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But the call is to apply that same level of concern for your own needs outwardly to the needs of others. And, you know, that's an easy enough point. But let that sink in for a minute. Do I use the same level of energy, the same determination, the same focus, the same attention, same thoughtfulness, same creativity to meet the needs of others that I do for my own needs? And when put that way, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all realize that, that, that we fall desperately short of this picture of humility, this picture of the beautiful mind united together. But we're commanded to have this kind of humility. Paul commands us right in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. This is what you are to look like. This is what your churches are to look like. How is it possible? How can it happen? How can we get there? Verse 5, because it's yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus. The only way we can have this kind of radical humility where we look to the interests of others before our own, where we think of others more significant than ourselves, is by looking to Jesus' humility, by being captured by His humility, by bringing His humility into our lives and letting it motivate us and and energize us and, and permeate every area of our lives. It's yours in Christ Jesus. So how do we get there in Christ Jesus, bringing His humility into our lives? So let's do that as we look at verses 6 through 11. And let's just see, how is Christ the ultimate example of humility? How is Christ the ultimate example of humility? First, we see that that Jesus Christ humbled Himself by becoming a man. Look at verse 6 with me. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form or in the very nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does it mean when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God? Typically, we think of form as something like a shadow, perhaps. A shadow has your general appearance. It has your general characteristics. It has your movements. It has your shape. But obviously, it's not you. It's only your appearance. It's you in a lesser way. But Jesus being in the form of God certainly does not mean that Jesus is God in some kind of lesser way or only an appearance of God. And verse 7 helps us see that. In verse 7, Paul says, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form or very nature of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. It's the same word. And whatever your view is of Jesus here this morning, whatever you believe about him, Hopefully you can acknowledge what a tremendous servant he was. He spent time with the poor and outcasts of society. He 
met their needs. He spent time teaching others his wisdom. He washed his disciples' feet. He was a tremendous servant. And so being in the form of a servant certainly doesn't mean that Jesus was a servant in some lesser way or he was only the appearance of a servant. He was the ultimate servant. He was a servant in the fullest possible way. And that's what it means that Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus is God in the fullest possible way. As Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. As one commentator says, the form, Jesus being in the form of God, means that Jesus is identified with the essential nature and character God of God and that which reveals it. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus, Jesus, who was a baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, who grew up in a small town, who worked as a carpenter, who lived and served among us, that Jesus is fully, completely God himself. And this is essential to true Christianity, the declaration that Jesus is fully God. And yet, and yet, though he was fully God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be to, to cling to, to tenaciously hold on to, or to use for his own advantage, as your translation might say. See, Christ already had equality with God. We've seen that. He was fully God. He was God in the fullest possible way. But he, he lets go, not of being God, but of the status and privilege and glory he was receiving uh, from being God. When he makes himself nothing, when he becomes a man, he doesn't give up his being God, but he lets go of the status. He lets go of the privilege. He lets go of that glory he receives from being God and makes himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. Jesus took on frail human flesh. He took on a human body uh, with all of its weaknesses, with all of its limitations, with all of, all, all of its inclinations to illness, as many of you here this morning might know. He entered into human life, into human work, with all of its frustrations, with all of its flawed structures, with all of the daily grind that certainly many of you here this morning know. And he entered into human relationships with all of their disagreements and all of their misunderstandings and all of their heartaches. He he had a family. Think of all the, the problems and confusion he entered into there, just growing up as part of a family. As one of my pastors once said, Jesus, fully God, becoming a man, was not some kind of adventure. It was not uh, getting a change of scenery, going to a new place. Jesus becoming a man was a humiliation. It was a humiliation. And yet, as Paul shows us, this humiliation goes much farther. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, death on a cross. He went to the pain of the cross. Crucifixion uh, was one of the most painful forms of execution that's, that we've known in human history. It was a slow, agonizing death. He went to the pain 
of the cross. He went to the shame of the cross. In, in that time, crucifixion was, was a symbol of shame. We may not think of that now with the cross being so identified with Christianity. In that time, it was a symbol of shame. To everyone, to the Jews, written in the law of Moses, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. The condemned person had to go outside of the city, be cast out of his people, and carry his cross up to the hill and be executed. It was a shame to the Jews. It was a shame to Greeks and to Roman citizens. Crucifixion was a death reserved for the the lowest of criminals. It was a death reserved for, for slaves. The pain and the shame of the cross. Not only did Jesus renounce His status and privilege of being God by becoming a man, then when He was a man, He renounced His privilege even to live. And notice the language here. Verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death. In going to the cross, Jesus in humility was being obedient to the will of his Father. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, just hours before Jesus' death, as he is praying in agony, sweating drops of blood to his Father, he prays, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. If it be your will, Don't let me go through with this, but not my will, but yours be done. And going to the cross, he submitted to the will of his Father in humility. You see, the greatest pain of the cross was not physical. The greatest shame of the cross was not from society. The greatest pain, the greatest shame of the cross was this obedience, was drinking that cup that Jesus asked to be taken from him, the cup of And what is that cup? The cup of the Father's judgment and wrath for sin. Though Jesus was selfless, completely humble, though Jesus was sinless, He went to the cross, He bore the punishment for sin that that selfish sinners deserved. We deserve that judgment. We deserve that death. And yet He went in obedience to the Father to cross, in humility Jesus went to the cross for His Father. In in humility, Jesus went to the cross for you. Why Why did He do it? Why would He go through that? Because He was not seeking His own agenda in a spirit of rivalry. He wasn't seeking His own glory in a spirit of pride. He was thinking of us. He was thinking of you as more significant than Himself. Think about that. Jesus was thinking of you as more significant than Himself. And that's what made him go to the cross. He was thinking of your interests before his own. And so bring that humility into your life because we who are saved in Christ are called to that same mindset, to that same attitude, to that same service, to think of others as more significant than ourselves, to think of the interests of others before our own. The the amazing thing about this passage is that Paul takes this glorious theology, this, this glorious picture of Christ's humility, and he basically is asking us to bring it into the nitty-gritty details of our everyday life. It's the humility of Christ that motivates me, or it should motivate me, to, to clean up every dish and to close my dresser drawers until not even one little inch of shirt is peeking out. I'm still working on that one. And it's the humility of Christ 
that you can bring into the nitty-gritty details of your own life and, and into the life of the church. It's His humility that causes you to stop and to have that conversation that may make you a little uncomfortable. It's this humility of Christ that motivates you to, to, to write that note of encouragement or to make that phone call or to follow up on that prayer request or to support and be in prayer for a ministry that you might not necessarily have direct involvement in. It's this humility of Christ that, that can cause you to say, hey, I think I'll consider someone else's idea for once. If you remember in verse 2, Paul describes this humility as having the same love. Having the same love. This whole passage is really just another way of saying love each other as God in Christ has loved you. Think of the sympathy of Christ to enter into your weaknesses and struggles and trials and temptations by becoming a man. Think of the affection that Christ has for you. How He yearned for you so much that He would become a man and He would go to the cross. Let that sympathy and affection come into your own life. That you would yearn for your fellow Christians with affection. That you would long to be with them. That you would pray for them. That you would ache when you're away from them. And clearly, this kind of humility cannot help but unite the church together and bring us side by side. And so what what happens when we do? What happens when we get there more and more? And that takes us to verse 9. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, Jesus' humiliation, precisely because He humbled Himself, God exalted Him. Humiliation excuse me, leads to exaltation. The way of weakness leads to power and strength and effectiveness. That's the way of the Gospel. That's what Jesus said. He who humbles Himself will be exalted. So how do we become effective or more effective as a church? It's this way of weakness. It's this way of humiliation that brings power, that brings strength into our lives. And so let's look at Jesus' exaltation in this passage. He's given the name that is above every name. And what is that name? Above every name that He's given in His resurrection and exaltation. Well, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, where the Lord is speaking and He says, to me every knee will bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And Paul takes that passage from Isaiah and applies it to Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus is Lord. That's the name above every name. Jesus Christ is Lord. And His Lordship, His rule, His authority is all-inclusive. The whole universe will recognize His control and His power and His authority over all things. And so what does that mean for us this morning? Again, we who have been joined in Christ's death will be joined with Him in His resurrection. We who have been joined with Christ in this humiliation, this way of weakness, will be joined with Him in His exaltation, in this way of power and strength. And that resurrection power is in us by the Holy Spirit, and it overflows when we humble ourselves and when we look to the interests of others before our own. We rejoice at what God is doing. We rejoice 
Let there be more cause for rejoicing. What would God do? What would we see Him do? How would we see Him work if we humbled ourselves and loved each other? Zach Slagle, a missionary we support in Cambodia who spoke with us recently, told us of, of Ishmael, a, a man, young man who became a follower of Jesus, even though it meant being expelled from his family, kicked out of his hometown, his money for college was taken away. Basically, following Jesus for him means walking alone in the world. And when they asked him, why? <laughs> why would you do this? Why would you follow Jesus when it means all of that? And Ishmael's reply was, because I see the love that believers have for each other. Because I see the love that believers have for each other. And we rejoice for the love that is present in this congregation. I've experienced it, and I thank God for that, and I thank you all for that. Imagine what more God would do if we, if we humbled ourselves and loved each other even more. Imagine how God could use Redeemer in this city. Imagine what God would do if we began to humble ourselves and love and appreciate Christians from other backgrounds and Christians from other traditions and cultures and races. Don't you think the city would take notice? Maybe we can start with churches and in, in, in our own denomination, in our own circles. Maybe we can just start there to begin to love and appreciate what they're doing. Don't you think people would take notice? Don't you think they would want to be a part of that kind of love to see us united together side by side for the gospel? Yeah, they would notice. And so you may be here this morning... Some of you saying, well, I've, I've never seen that. I've never noticed that. In my experience, all I've seen is the ugliness. I haven't seen the beautiful mind. I've seen the pride. I've seen the pointless disagreements. I've seen the speaking poorly of each other. I, I don't want to be a part of that. And if that's you here this morning, I would just encourage you with, with a few thoughts. First of all, you're right. <laughs> okay, you're right. There is ugliness in our churches at times because there's ugliness in our own hearts. Yes, pride and selfishness permeate a lot of what we do sometimes. Oftentimes there's not love and affection in our churches. But this doesn't make Christianity untrue. This doesn't make the Bible untrue. In fact, in a way it confirms its truth because... That's exactly why the Bible is giving us these passages, because God knows that we struggle. God knows that we're prideful. He knows that we need the humility of Christ in our lives. That's why He's given us passages like this. The Bible expects that we're going to struggle. We've got a long way to go. We're not there yet. There's still going to be some, some ugliness and some disunity and some disagreements. God knows that, and He's given us His Word to help us get there. And second of all, I would just say, can you... At least acknowledge that, that there may be pride in your own life. Uh, do you always look to the interests of others before your own? Do you always think of others as more significant than yourselves? I think all of us fall short of that. And, and so I would encourage you not, not to look down on in pride and not to separate yourself from a community of people who know they're not completely beautiful yet, but we're hoping to get there one day. We're hoping to get there one day. And then I would just say our, our pride, when it's present, doesn't honor Jesus. But it takes nothing away from His humility. 
And I would say to you and to everyone that's here, here this morning, bring this humility into your life. Make it yours in Christ Jesus. Look to His death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Look to that love. Ask God that you would know His love and then that you would know the love that is present in the church, that you would experience it and have a taste of it and want more of it. And ask that then God, maybe He can use you to bring more love to the church, to bring more humility, to help unite us together. We need your gifts. We need your unique perspectives. We need your challenge to to help us grow together. Look to Jesus. Bring that humility into your life so that through our differences, through our disagreements, because yes, they will be there, that we would still strive side by side and see God powerfully work even more in and through us. And so that ultimately, verse 11 that it would be to the glory of God the Father. And I love this part of the passage, that even in Christ's exaltation, even in Jesus being given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess and all creation is worshiping Jesus around the throne, that Jesus is still saying, I'm giving the glory to my Father. Even in His exaltation, Jesus is being humbled. And that's available to you, that kind of humility. And so as we look to Jesus and His humility, bring it into our lives as our church is more and more united together in this beautiful mind, may we too give the glory, not to us, not to us, but to Your name alone, the glory to God the Father. Let's pray in that way together as we close. Father, again, I just simply ask that not to us, not to us, but to Your name alone be the glory. So I ask that You would bring that humility, that You would amaze us with this this glorious picture of the humility of Christ. That just a little bit more today, in, in one small way this week, that more and more we would look to the interests of others before our own, think of others as more significant than ourselves, so that we would be united together in love by Your Holy Spirit, so that we would see You work powerfully in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.